You're listening to And you're listening to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yeh. And I'm Rira Yu. And we are here this episode for another great author chat. Um, we are talking to author June C.L. Tan about her debut novel, Jade Fire Gold, uh, which is an Asian-inspired fantasy. Rira, what did you think about the book? I loved reading it. Um, even though it's a chonky book, I read through it pretty quickly. Um, I know that this was definitely your jam, uh, Marvin, because it had a lot of wuxia influences and <laughs> you really love Asian-inspired fantasies. So out of all of the ones that we have read so far, how does it compare? You know, all of the books that we've read have been pretty awesome. I think this is the most action adventure ones that we've read so far. It's very heavy on the adventure, which I love, you know, because that's the cornerstone of any wuxia and xinxia story. Um, and the characters are great and the the world building is amazing. And, and you know, from my interview with June, she is a world building lover and it really shows in her prose. And you know, we had a really great chat with June um, about her background, about her experience shopping this book and just about all the great stuff that she has in, in this book as well that we also love. So, yeah, without further ado, here is our interview with June CL10. And we are here with author June C.L. Tan, um, the author of Jade Fire Gold, which just released um, at bookstores everywhere. Um, Welcome to the show, June. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to chat with you guys. Yeah. No, we're super. I'm super excited to have another uh, Asian inspired fantasy to uh, recommend to other people Mm because I just just can't get enough. I managed to uh, catch a little bit of your book launch with Book of Wonder with Joan He. Um, I was actually doing another author event, so I like wasn't supposed to watch, but I was like, I have to, I have to catch some of it. And I found out that you were a BTS fan, so that made my that made my heart really happy. Oh, are you, are you an army too? Like, yes, I, I am wearing my uh, butter cardigan, and oh, I, I have and I have yeah. my BT twenty one coffee mug. I have so. I have like my stuff too, but they're like. For it's away. okay. It's a podcast. No one, no one will be able to see it. <laughs> Describe it for me, Rira. What does it look like? Um, I mean, my coffee mug is pretty much pink with a lot of cute uh, animal. Um, those are their line characters, right? Like, yeah, the it's the like, line yes. characters. Yes. yes, for those of you who use line, you should know because those are your default uh, emoticon slash emojis. Yes. Yeah, I'm sure like people know what BT21 is. Oh, they have seen like some yeah. of the characters. By, yeah. by this point, you probably know what it is. I mean, if, <laughs> yes. if even I know, you know, you can't escape it. <laughs> That's true. But you also have been my co-host for five years. So for a huge chunk of those years, I've been a BTS fan. So you've just mm-hmm. kind of had to deal with all of my fangirlness. So. Are you going to the concert? Are you going to the concert? Yes, I'm going on Sunday and I'm going on Thursday and I am hoping I get to go on the first day. So we shall see. I am so jealous. If I I was in California still, I would definitely go. But unfortunately, I don't think I can make it this time. I'm very, very sad. It's okay. There's streaming exists. Yes. Yes. I'm going to watch that. Yes. But this is not a BTS podcast. (laughs) BTS and Bulba. Okay. Okay. The, the thing still is, works. if you are an author and you're a BTS fan, we'll get along swimmingly <laughs> in future episodes, just so you know. Um, but yeah, no, we always like to start off our um, author interviews by learning more about your background as an author. Was writing something you've always done growing up? Was it something that you picked up? And you know, wha- and you know how you became a, a novelist. Um. I guess like with many, many writers and authors, I enjoyed reading when I was a child. 
Um, and I read voraciously. I read what during meals, even though my parents didn't like it. I instead of watching a TV, I'll be just reading. I would read cereal boxes just to read. Um, and I would write like um, little stories. Um, sometimes I guess you could call them like early fan fiction in that sense because you're trying to like mimic an author's style, an author that you admire, or like you know write um, a story in a world if it's a fantasy book or a sci-fi book. So that's how I started going. But um, soon, like in college and, you know, working life came in, I didn't really write at all. I mean, if I wrote anything, it was like, you know, essays and term papers and <laughs> stuff like, like boring academic stuff. Well, not so boring, but, you know, you know what I mean? Like a different style and a different tone. And it was only um, much later like um, sometime, I want to say maybe seven years ago that I thought, okay, maybe I want to start writing again, you know. And I started with um, poetry, writing little, you know, little snippets of things like flash fiction and so on. And then um, after a while, I was like, okay, let's try to write a book. And that's kind of what happened. Um, the first complete book I tried to write was probably horrible and it's somewhere in some you know file that I'm not going to look at forever and then um, I had the idea for Jade Fire Gold and I was started working on it from about 2016-2017 for some time yep and that's kind of like the short answer for how I came <laughs> to start yeah. writing a novel. Yeah, I mean, did you have a background in creative writing? Like, what did you study in school? And I'm looking at your um, bio right now, and it says that you have three degrees, and that is quite <laughs> impressive. <laughs> yes and no, because they're a bit useless. Well, well, they're not useless. I really enjoyed school, um, but they're not the most practical. Like, um, the first, my undergraduate degree was in media and communications. So it was like studying media and communications and writing essays about that. And um, the second degree is like a postgraduate thing where I um, did a diploma in um, the teaching of English and English literature. Um, and then I taught for a while. And then the third degree is a master's in cinema studies from NYU. And I thought I was going to be a professor after that, like do my PhD and so on. Um, so yeah, so in a way, they're not the most practical degrees, um, but... But they definitely geared you for, yeah. uh, for storytelling. Yes, definitely. <laughs> I think, like, I've always enjoyed stories, even though perhaps I leaned towards the visual medium. So, you know, watching things, writing about movies, writing about independent films, things like that, and... Yeah, I mean, they are related to storytelling, like you said. Yeah, yeah um, I also went to NYU. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I went to Tisch for uh, dramatic writing. And my partner, um, he didn't go to Tisch, but he also went to NYU and he studied cinema studies. So I know that you probably wrote a lot of papers and you are probably yeah. more qualified to do this podcast than both Marvin and myself. Hey, hey, I mean, five years of practical I mean, experience. Hey, I, I've never done a po I think this is only the second podcast I've done. So I'm no expert. And yeah. And you can't dunk on her own podcast on her <laughs> yes, podcast. Yes. I'm just saying that she has more experience breaking down stories and knowing structure and knowing themes. So if you ever want to start a book club podcast, June, I think you're pretty much set in that level of that, that area of expertise. It's interesting well, you say. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting that you say that you're much more geared toward the visual medium because your your book is very very cinematic and very very visual. I want to ask, like, what drew you to writing a Asian inspired fantasy? Well, I guess like even though I grew up in Singapore and you know like I was surrounded by other Asian people, um, a lot of and I saw like you know Asian people on. TV and in the movies, but still like the bulk of the media came from um, the UK and the US. Hmm. So it was still a lot of like, um, I guess, I guess it's a post-colonial mindset where a lot of people are like, oh, you know, 
Western films are better or Western media is better. And you watch like, you know, Chinese films or Hong Kong films and you're like, hmm, doesn't look as nice or something like that. And there was a little bit of a prejudice, I think. Um, but personally, when I was growing up, I just loved Hong Kong cinema, um, whether it was adaptations of wuxia, which is martial arts um, novels by Ching Yong and Gu Long, or whether it was your Taiwanese period dramas where everyone cries for 60 episodes, <laughs> you know, nonstop. Or um, it was, you know, um, court dramas where there's lots of like political intrigue going on. People are backstabbing each other. There's lots of like military strategy. Like I just really, really loved um, all these kind of shows and movies. So when I started writing, when I started writing again, I think I had Asian characters, but the world was contemporary. And then when I had the idea for Jade Fire Gold, I was like, Hmm, you know, maybe I should make it a little more martial artsy, a little bit more xianxia, which is immortal heroes. Like kind of like the stuff that I grew up with and enjoyed because you can, when you write a book, you kind of have to reread it like hundreds of times. <laughs> so you have to love it. Um, you know, you might not be 100% happy with it, but you have to love what you're writing. So I started doing that. And I guess like what Marvin said, it's it's the book is... I don't know if I intended it to be super cinematic. It was just the way I write because I'm the sort of person that unfortunately or unfortunately loves world building. And if no one edits me or if I don't rein myself in, I would describe like a room for like a whole chapter. I would tell you every single thing in it. So I guess that's how my brain works. Like I tend to see how a scene is laid out and where the positioning of the characters, how they move, what they're wearing, how they look. And then I try to incorporate that in the way I write. Yeah. So perhaps that's why it comes off a little bit more visual. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned mm -hmm. that you started writing this book in 2017, mm -hmm. which is, I think, before the industry as a whole, at least like Hollywood, were into Asians. So I guess, you know, when you were <laughs> writing it and when you were, you know, even shopping, like how, how was that experience? Like, was it a hard sell or were you I'm, able I'm to? I'm just going to interrupt here. Sorry, Marvin. <laughs> yeah. I remember your book pitch from DV Pit back oh in like 2017, I think. Wow. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, because we've been doing this podcast since 2016 and DV Pit was relatively new at that time. I don't know if it was the first time they were doing it in 2017. Maybe it was the second time. The second time. Yeah. Because I pitched in 2016 too. Yeah. Um, the same book, but I was, I had no idea how anything worked. I had like oh don't worry third, no one did <laughs> i had a third of the book and i thought i can pitch this and then i pitched it and i realized oh you're supposed to query the whole manuscript <laughs> and i was like oh okay i better start writing and then yeah that's what happened in 2017 the manuscript was ready and then i pitched it um and well you're like you're not the only person who has told me that they remember it was very distinct, I remember, because um, it was like Avatar The Last Airbender meets mm -hmm. uh, the Grisha trilogy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I remember. And I was like, oh, interesting. Like, that, th those are like two very different things. How is she going to combine them? But mm -hmm. also, I was like, oh, Avatar The Last Airbender, it's inspired by Asian culture. It's inspired by our own like martial yeah. arts movies and dramas. I was like, is it really Avatar or is it just like Asian drama? Yeah. <laughs> Asian dramas. I think we talked about this with um, Shiran Jai Zhao, but it's like sometimes yeah. you have to speak in their language because they won't get yes. the references that yes. we make, right? Yeah, because the thing is, I wouldn't. I I mean, to be honest, I would not have like. Um, comped it to um, Avatar The Last Airbender um, because I hadn't watched it when I was writing this book. I only watched it sometime in 2017, I think just before DV Pit, because someone was like, hey, you know, um, a, a CPU who read the book was like, this feels a little ATLA. I'm like, what's ATLA? Isn't it that horrible 2010 movie with all the white people? Like, why are you saying my <laughs> book? Like, <laughs> because I had no idea it came from a cartoon. And um, then I, I, I watched it. I was like, hey, this is great. But 
it's so strange because you know I found out that the creators when when Asian people, even though I think the writers' room had like um, yeah, they Asian had writers. Asians yeah. and they also consulted a martial art expert. Yeah, who was like yeah, yeah. who's so also Asian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, so I felt that yeah, you know, um, that seemed like a something that a, the general person or editor or agent might know instead of me saying legend of the condo heroes you know <laughs> or like heavenly saver they'll be like what <laughs> you know so i used atla uh, and the grisha thing was more of like you know a main protagonist having this power that could be good or could be bad you know and that that felt like a proper comp um, but going back to what Marvin was asking um, about whether it was difficult when I was trying to find an agent, yes, <laughs> it was. Um, because I think in 2017, it was kind of when um, we were seeing more diverse fantasies and fantasies by authors of color being, um, I hate to use the word trend, but trend or at least you know people are starting to notice or people um editors are starting to you know buy these books um but also i think like it felt to me at least um people were unsure as to whether an african-american fantasy would sell uh, uh an asian fantasy would sell uh you know arabian fantasy would sell so like they would agents would sign like just that one client <laughs> or a publisher would buy just that one book you know just in case it flops or something like that you know so it was a difficult time trying to get an agent because, you know, like the rejections um, sometimes felt a little colder because it was things like, I couldn't connect with the main character. Oh. Or, 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 or things that implied that it wasn't the version of what they think China was. Or, or you know, they were tired of some of the tropes. And I'm like, I mean... There's so many other lost air tropes to uh, lost air books. What what's wrong with this one? So it was difficult, um, but I think the turning point for me was um, getting into pitch wars and um, getting a mentor who not only advised me and you know helped me like you know polish the book even more so that eventually I did get an agent. Yeah, but then of course you know you have to submit to publishers and that's always a struggle. <laughs> for, you know, marginalized authors. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you were able to persevere and pull through because, you know, <laughs> this book is, it takes a lot of inspirations from things that, you know, as a Chinese um, diaspora, I am familiar with from watching those Hong Kong and Taiwanese period dramas, you know, the Wuxia, the Xinxia, the, mm-hmm. even the Imperial Court dramas, right? You know, it mm-hmm. was really cool to see that on page and, you know, told mm-hmm. in, in such a way. I, was, I really appreciated it. I feel like, um, like you said, it, I don't want to say trend either, but there's been a surge of Asian-inspired fantasy. And what I've noticed from, like, other interviews with these authors, um, Asian diasporan authors, they kind of have this hesitation to take creative licenses with Asian folklore and history because it's... You know, they worry that it's not going to be authentic enough or original enough or um, are they in, are they the right person to adapt something that's not from like because they're American. Um, so I just want to ask, like, did you experience this conflict? I know you grew up in Singapore and there's a lot of like modern versus traditionalism and intersectionality over there. So I'm just curious. Um, yes and no. I think when I first started drafting Jade Fire Gold, I didn't think too hard about whether I could write it or I was in the position or the right person to write something like that, you know, Asian fantasy and so on, or Chinese fantasy, um, because it was so familiar to me. It was part of my childhood. Like my friends and I would watch it. We knew you know, like the tropes, the storylines and all that kind of stuff. So it felt really organic. Um, And it was only a little later when um, I guess like there was a lot of debate and discussion about own voices and what what did own voices mean. And um, when, unfortunately, the term became a little weaponized against, you know, marginalized creators that I started like thinking more deeply about, you know, um, the book and what I was writing and how I would write future books. I think every diaspora author goes through this 
goes through this really painful process of being like, hey, but it is my culture. But when you write it, you're like, who am I representing? Am I just representing myself? Am I representing the whole culture? Am I representing a small group? Um, and I think like I found, I mean, it's something I still think about. And I think like all marginalized creators think about, but it's something I also decided for myself that yes, I do have a voice. I do have the right to write it because it's my experiences. Um, it comes from my family. It comes from my ancestors. And we always, I mean, you know, we always say that dias- um, culture is not a monolith. You know, diaspora is not a monolith. And I think especially for Asian diaspora, whether it's South Asian, East Asian or Southeast Asian or just Chinese diaspora, it is so complex because you have literally thousands of years of history and thousands of years of migration patterns. And what your ancestors bring from a region of a really large country is completely different sometimes to what, you know, um, generations before or generations later will bring. Um, like, let me like give you an example. Like, I happen to be very familiar with um, folklore and legends like uh, the moon goddess, like the cowhood and weaving maiden, you know, um, the Chinese Romeo and Juliet butterfly lovers and things like that, because those are stories I grew up with. Um, when I came to America and I met some um, Chinese Americans and their families had um, left China later than my family did, you know, my, my ancestors did, and they didn't bring those stories with them. You know, sometimes like when a generation migrates, they leave part of their culture behind depending on the situation in terms of how they moved. So the community that grows in a different country, you know, it's it's still going to be diaspora. It's still going to be Chinese, but it's just, you know, with tweaks, um, it evolves a little bit. So I think it's actually very unfair to tell people who want to create based on their own um, personal experiences um, that no, you know, you shouldn't be allowed to say this. You shouldn't be allowed to write the story, you know, as long as it's done with respect and as long as, you know, they thought carefully about what they're writing and done their research and so on. Yeah. But it is a struggle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love how you say diaspora isn't a monolith because I feel like a lot of people forget that. Um, mm-hmm. I, I know that for a lot of readers out there, maybe it'll be the first time they see themselves remotely represented. And when they're not represented like 100%, it could be painful because they yes. they don't have any other examples. And this is why representation matters so much. And mm-hmm. because di- diaspora is not a monolith, it's always nice to see uh, so many different types of Asian-inspired fantasy. I mean, like, we just <laughs> interviewed uh, Sharon J. Zhao, who is the mm-hmm. author of Iron Widow, and that is a very different type of Asian-inspired yeah. fa- fantasy uh, from Jade Fire Gold. So mm-hmm. it is really nice to see that diversity within that community. Definitely. Like, I think, like, it's, it's definitely true that because... Um, there are so few books that represent so few parts of a culture in, in America, at least, and in U.S. publishing, at least, that when readers pick up a book, sometimes they have certain expectations. And when it's not met, they do feel disappointed and rightly so. Um, but I think the focus should be on the industry. <laughs> you know, the industry should be buying, you know, various types of books, you know, not just one Chinese fantasy, one Japanese fantasy, one hurt, <laughs> because that's not how it works, you know? So, yeah. And yeah, I mean, look at how know. many wuxia films there are, you know? Precisely. It's just, like, there's so yeah. many. I'm pretty sure yeah. they can buy, like, more than five books that mm-hmm. delve into that genre. <laughs> definitely, definitely. If we can have, like, 101 white princess books in two years, <laughs> we can have 10, you know? <laughs> Um, non-white princess fantasies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So I want to talk more about Jade Fire Gold. And especially I want to talk, you, you mentioned that you are a, a world-building fanatic and you can definitely <laughs> tell like this is a original world. There's some inspirations from, you know, Imperial China and and like the Wuxia and Xinxia genre. But you have so just so many moving pieces. You have like the Imperial capital. You have like the the borderlands where you know mm-hmm. the martial arts sects um, operate 
and mm-hmm. just so much history too within this book. Like, how long did it take you to come up with everything? I mean, did you do it as you wrote, or did you have like a whole world bible to operate from before you even got started writing the story? Okay, strangely speaking, for a world building lover, <laughs> I didn't have a world bible. Um, I I had, I mean, I had bullet points and so on. And I thought about writing a world Bible, but I think like that Bible would be longer than the book. Um, so um, a lot of stuff I researched as I went along the first draft and then I added on as, you know, um, I revised and polished a manuscript. And yeah, I think I was also really lucky in the sense that I've um, been to certain places in China. I have seen those buildings that I, that you know, and I've also watched, you know, all the movies and shows. So I kind of like knew how the architecture would look like, how the colors would look like. And then when I went to um, for, to China on holiday a couple of times, I they have like preserved villages. And, and uh, I mean, obviously the Forbidden Palace and so on. So I just like, just took it in with my eyeballs. Um, but also I didn't, because it's a secondary world fantasy and it's inspired, I didn't want to like, you know, make it too obvious that I was talking about this specific place in China or this specific place in in, in some other city or, or country. And a lot of it was kind of like mushing together certain concepts and ideas that I had. Like, um, like you mentioned the borderlands and, and, I guess also like um, because there is a theme of um, colonization in the book. So that I kind of took um, from my knowledge of the British colonization um, of Southeast Asia, um, the British East Indies and so on. And um, the role that Singapore played in that and how it was handed from, you know, it was a fishing village and it went into, you know, the British hands and then it went to the Japanese hands and then it went back to the British hands and then it fought for independence. So things like that were running through my mind while I was building the world. So I would say that I took from basically just personal knowledge of, you know, how history has been in our world. Yeah. I'm always impressed when fantasy authors come up with the magic system. Um, like with your world, you know, there's like, uh, there are priests and there's like religion. And I just, I'm curious, like how you came up with um, all of the rules for magic. I think the fundamental rule for magic, so to speak, is very steeped in um, Chinese martial arts. Um, um, the idea of qi. Basically, you know, um, the flow in your body, um, circulation, and how it affects, you know, your meridian points. I mean, you find it in traditional Chinese medicine, you find it in um, acupuncture, you find it in um, Chinese martial arts, and also like the, so I'm not sure what, whether you call it the slower martial arts, but things like Tai Chi, you know, which is basically like, you know, moving the Chi in your body and expelling things and bringing things in. Basically, a movement of energy. That's how I understood from research and, you know, from, you know, my grandparents used to like do Tai Chi. So I'll be like, that's my understanding of it. <laughs> um, so I had like a pretty, I guess, strong foundation in terms of like, you know, how to come up with, you know, some parts of the magic system. Um, and I will confess that some of it is just aesthetic <laughs> because like in, in my head, it's like, okay, if... Um, I guess that's why the ATLA comp works too, because, you know, when you're moving chi around, you're able to move objects. So it's like, you know, wind moving an object or just uh, the pressure from your, you know, your internal energy moving an object and stuff like that. Or, you know, like heating up your chi so that you could expel fire and so on. So it's just basically a lot of it has to do with like, you know, assuming that a person is born with an amount of energy and how you're going to manipulate that in that sense. Yeah. I, I respect the uh, priority <laughs> for aesthetics. That is very important. We'll, we'll yeah. get to aesthetics later on in this talk. Mm-hmm. Um, so your book is told from two alternating POVs on and all time. Um, was that always planned? And how did their voices come to you? Um, it wasn't always planned that way. Like it started with on only like um just one protagonist and going on with her adventures and so on 
And um, but I always knew that she would meet the other character, Altan. And um, because of how his character is like, he's he's not likely to say what his emotions are, how he's feeling. And so much of it, of his backstory is like from his childhood is all internalized. He's like, he's like clogged up with emotions <laughs> and, and he's not going to like say it out loud. So it felt um, that he needed a POV so that the reader could see where he's coming from and, you know, like follow his um, character trajectory and his arc and so on. Um, so I added another POV and um I don't know, I guess like as I was drafting it and writing the book, sometimes I would have this voice in my head and it's him saying things. And I'm like, I guess maybe I need to put you on page more and, you know, give you a voice, so to speak. And I think like at the end of when I finished the book, when I polished it, I felt like it wouldn't have it wouldn't have made as much sense or I wouldn't be able to tell the story I wanted to tell if it was just a single POV. Yeah. Yeah, I think definitely the book um, really benefited from having Altan's uh, POV. He seems to have like a very uh, dry (laughs) sense of humor that I definitely uh, relate to. And uh, I don't know, just I love grumpy characters. <laughs> like oh, they're they're some of my favorite in fiction. Rira, how was the how was the romance aspect for you? How is the romance aspect? Um, I I love slow burns, and I know romance isn't the main genre of your book, but I think you wrote the slow burn really well. Uh, especially, there's like not a lot of touching. <laughs> it's just a lot of you know a lot of deep gazes, and because um, it's alternating POVs, you hear their inner thoughts. Like, ooh, mm-hmm. I think she's cute. But I'm not going to say it because <laughs> yeah. uh, I might have to kill her. <laughs> so, um, yeah, what is your secret to writing good slow burn? I don't know. And I feel like not everyone's going to agree with you that the romance was. But I'm very glad that you well, enjoyed it. Well, my opinion it. matters most. So. <laughs> this is, our, this is our, <laughs> our official stance as Books and Boba. <laughs> Great. Um, I think the romance, um, because how I saw the story, it was an epic fantasy that had some romance, not a romance fantasy, if that makes sense, or fantasy romance. So the romance wasn't like the main part. Um, But, you know, because I wanted them sort of opposed to each other, but yet making some sort of emotional connection along the way. So it felt like I needed some romance. And in terms of how to write a slow bit, well... I, I take I took my cue from Chinese period dramas because they're so conservative. Oh yeah, they're like the masters yeah. of slow burn. Yeah, they have like, like over a hundred episodes, right? Yeah. Right, and not just Chinese, like 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 some Korean dramas too, Taiwanese dramas, just Asian dramas. Like you know, because you because touching is not a thing, and making out in a, a drama is not a thing. Maybe. <laughs> You know, it, it fades to black even before they can touch or something like that. You know, or like n- nothing physical really happens. And you're right, Rira, like it goes for hundreds of episodes and they just drag it on and on and on, you know. But all the while, you know that, you know, they're attracted to each other. They may be in love with each other. And it's all like communicated with like a wrist grab. And then you let it go really fast or like a glance or like every time. Um, I, I think it was harder to write it because like in a visual media, you know, you're sort of like dependent on, or you have the actors to help you. You know, like if uh, the guy is just, you know, glancing at the girl and his facial expression change changes, you know, oh, he's attracted or something like that, the other way around. But in a book, you know, if you're writing from the POV from one character, it's a little hard to say like, you know, my facial expression changes, you know, it, it's, it's, it relies a lot on the reader to use that imagination, I think, um, in that sense. Like, you know, when a character is thinking about another character or like focusing a little bit on the character's hair, for example, or how they are looking, for example, or just what they're saying, or maybe thinking a little bit too much about that character, um, it, it sort of implies the attraction. Yeah. I think it also helps when you have side characters who are just like, don't lie to yourself. You you like yeah. this person. Um, yeah. And speaking of those characters, Tang Wei was probably my favorite character in this book. Uh, she is such chaos in the best <laughs> way possible. <laughs> 
But I really loved her uh, romance with um, Lin Shi. I thought they were such an adorable uh, sapphic couple. Mm-hmm. Um, more sapphic couples and Asian-inspired fantasies, yes. please, if you're an Asian-inspired yes. fantasy writer. <laughs> yes. um, I love how the queerness is, you know, it's not a problem. It's really normalized in your world. And mm-hmm. there really isn't a fear of retaliation to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what made you make that narrative decision? And what are your thoughts uh, in general on like the intersectionality of like POC characters, especially like Asian characters and like the queer community? Oof. <laughs> well, I think hmm, I think it comes back to once again, like when I started thinking about the story and revising it, it just felt like since I was in charge of the world, there was really no need for me to make certain characters of marginalized identities suffer more because the book is not about that. You know, I think it's different if you're writing something that maybe is about coming out, maybe the struggles of a queer character. But in the book, um, once again, I focused on different themes, um, less of identity and a personal identity and more about, you know, um, more, how do you say, like, you know, war, conflict, grief, things like that. And it just felt natural for them to live in a world that was queer norm. I think one early um, reader of the book called it queer norm. I hope I'm quoting her right. Um, Yeah, because um, there's really no need for them to be persecuted because um, the people who are being persecuted have magic. And, you know, this. I didn't feel a need to add that second layer in this particular book. And um, also because, like, in all the martial arts stories that I remember, um, like, queer characters weren't really a thing. Sometimes it seemed like some characters were coded in a way, um, be it queer or non-binary, but it was never really explicit. And personally, I wanted it to be explicit in my book. Um, Like, yeah, you know, they're a sapphic couple and they're happy I didn't want them to be sad. You know, we have other sad couples. <laughs> let them have a happy... Let them stay a, alive. Don't yes, fridge them, them. Yes, let them stay alive. Let them be happy. And that's why I stuck to that um, and made sure that that was how I wrote, you know, that particular couple. Um, and so you had a second part of the question. Yeah, I yeah. The second part of the question is like, what are your thoughts in general on like the intersectionality of POC characters, especially Asian characters and like the queer community? Because um, I don't know if our listeners know, but uh, queer Asians existed in history. So I don't see why they can't I- exist in fantasy. Yes. And that is precisely another point. Um like there are so many, there's so many hidden stories that um, with a bit of research, you know, I feel like we would discover um, that, you know, like queer people existed in ancient history in all cultures. Um, sometimes modernization sort of regressed that, that part a little bit and hit that part a, a little bit. Um, so, yeah, so my view is... Um, I don't know. My view is just that they existed. So we should write them. And in a fantasy world, when you're controlling so many things, you don't necessarily have to make it like the less savory parts of our world in in that sense when it comes to like, you know, um, queer people just trying to exist and trying to have rights. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And you're allowed to have more than one marginalized identity, in my opinion. (laughs) Yes, for sure. Um, For Yeah, because it's somehow baffling that, you know, um, sometimes people forget that um, Asians are disabled too, Asians are neurodivergent too, Asians are queer too, or, you know, any other um, BIPOC community has so many intersections and so many, you know, with so many marginalizations. Like, you know, we're just normal people who have, you Mm -hmm. know, stuff. (laughs) I want to talk about the amazing illustrations that you have that accompany your book, because it's something I wish more fantasy books would include is just illustrations of you know, key scenes or characters. Um, we just want a light novel pretty much <laughs> with illustrations in between. 
I the would prose. Love, I would love to write a light novel. Like, and um, I, I guess you're talking about the 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 art that I commissioned, and then oh, the, so you commissioned sweat. it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So um, that was commissioned, and um, I don't know. I guess it's one. It, it comes back to me being a visual person. And I think I also wanted to be, <laughs> at the start, I just really wanted everybody to know that this is how the aesthetic looks like. <laughs> you know, they're not elves. They're not like <laughs> token high fantasy. This is, you know, a Chinese inspired high fantasy. Yes, the dudes have long hair. Yes, they're wearing things that look like dresses, but they're not dresses. You know, just just making sure, because I didn't know how if readers were that familiar with it. And um, like you said, you know, I wrote the book in 2016, 2017. I was on submission for 2018 and a lot of 2019. And before then, you know, like things like The Untamed wasn't on Netflix, you know, um, the number of people that were familiar with the aesthetics of Chinese dramas and wuxia shows were less, I assume. Um, This was before Shang-Chi. There was before so many (laughs) things, before like Disney's, Life action Mulan and so on. So I felt like art was an important way to communicate that this is how it looks like, you know, um, when you're reading it, you know, this is how you can imagine how they look like. And also, personally, because I love art, I just wanted to have, you know, out of my characters because it's really cool. (laughs) I I love how you were just like, this is how it's going to look screw your imagination it's wrong this is what this is what it looks like Uh, I really love the illustrations because it reminded me of like my childhood when I grew up like reading manga and manhwa Mm -hmm. and like a lot of that aesthetic was very familiar to me um and I really love the cover, the the U.S. cover of Jade Fire mm-hmm. Gold. But I noticed that the U.K. version is vastly different. <laughs> um, so my question is, like, do you have a favorite? And also, what happened? That's such a dangerous question. <laughs> um, I, I actually don't have a favorite because... I wasn't sure if the the US cover came first. So I wasn't sure if the publisher would go with an illustrated cover with, you know, Asians on the cover um, or like an object-based cover with like the sword, which plays a big role in the story or like maybe some other motif, like Chinese motif or something. Because authors, like contrary to popular belief, authors have very little say in the covers most of the time. Um, So... I mean, they they were kind enough to ask me to like, you know, share some mood boards, my Pinterest and so on. So I showed them like a bunch of like ideas um, and aesthetics. Once again, yes, they have long sleeves <laughs> and so on. Um, and I was very, very fortunate that the main cover designer um, for Jade Fire Gold is um, Asian American. And she was familiar with the aesthetics and she also was familiar with um, Asian illustrators. And um, I will say that, you know, the cover is a product of her genius. I only had um, some input at a later stage when most of it was done and then we tweaked little bits. And she actually um, got a Singaporean illustrator, Gu Wei, Zheng Gu Wei, to illustrate it. And I was just shocked and really, really happy, you know, like, hey, my fellow countrymen and also an Asian illustrator. <laughs> And um, when I saw it, I was really, really surprised um, and really, really happy because it was, it was, I guess it's pretty different in a way. Um, yeah, it definitely stands out when you put yeah. it on a bookshelf. Like you can't help but look at it. Yeah, yeah. I want to say usually it's the other way around where the American cover is kind of plain. And then I go to mm-hmm. like Taiwan and see the international cover of these books, like um, Kendara Blake's Three Dark Crowns. And it's like this really beautiful, yes. like anime, like... Yes. We always complain. It's like, why do we not get like the cool anime, manga, manhwa, illustrated covers? I mean, they look so pretty. More people yeah. would read it if yeah. if the cover is pretty. Because we all judge books by covers. <laughs> yes, we do. And and yeah, I would I yeah, I hope we have more covers like that. Um, because I love manga, I love anime, I love like, you know, just just a different aesthetic from the the kind of covers we tend to get um, in YA here. 
Although I think maybe things are changing. I'm seeing a lot of illustrated covers with. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, yeah, and it's it, they're all really cool. Um, as for the US, uh, the UK cover. Um, I not saying that it's bad. I'm just saying, <laughs> <laughs> like, um, not to get you in trouble with your publisher. Yeah. I love it too because, in the sense that it's striking the colors that they use, and I like how they stacked the title just like that, and you know, drew a line in the middle, had the sword, and if you read the book, the cover kind of makes a little bit more sense and how they did the sword, and um, I I think like I love both because I feel like as an author, you know, you're really lucky to get two different covers. You know, I mean, you're first. You're really lucky to get a cover that you love, <laughs> and then you're extra co- lucky to get two covers that you know are diff- completely different. You know, that showcase different aspects of you know your book. And very strangely, um, I assume that the UK publisher knows exactly what they're doing because um, they also distribute um, the book to um, Singapore and all my Singaporean friends. Love the UK cover more. Oh, okay. So, so uh, yeah. they they know what they're doing. They're the yeah, masters they, of marketing. They're trying yeah, to get a different demographic. <laughs> yeah. So it's really interesting. I mean, I assume maybe because you know they're used to seeing you know US like uh, the 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 like the manga like covers. So you know the yeah. sort cover works differently for them. Yeah. I think we're just here in the states. We're just more hungry for something different, yes. right? <laughs> Yes, yeah. yes, for sure. Yeah. Well, we're winding down to the end of our time. So mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you one more question. And it's more mm-hmm. of a silly question. <laughs> um, if you can do a crossover uh, with any other fantasy for Jade Fire Gold, uh, what would it be? It can be a book. It can be a TV show. It could be an anime. Go wild. Crossover as in my characters. Yeah, your characters. Yeah. Oh, wow. This is fun. Um, Like, okay, the first answer in my mind is Jujutsu Kaisen, um, (laughs) anime and manga. But I'm actually writing another, a new project, which I feel like that character, that those characters might make more sense in that world. So, yeah. But... Yeah, actually, I'm going to go with that. Jujutsu oh, yeah, yeah. Kaisen. <laughs> yeah, just a bunch. Because they have like, you know, cursed magic. And then, you know, the powers are kind of cool. And I feel like, you know, it, it sort of like might make sense in the Xianxia way, you know. Yeah. I have one more question, too. And this mm-hmm. is because your book has kind of like an after credit scene at the end of it. So, um are you working on another book in this universe? Can you talk anything about that? Is it like under wraps right now? Um, nothing is under wraps because it is, as of this point, as of this recording, it is still a standalone. Mm. It was a one book deal and that's all <laughs> I have right now. I am working on something else, but it has nothing to do with J. Firebolt. Oh. Unfortunately, <laughs> but who knows? Yeah, you left Ooh. the door open and... That's the important part. <laughs> yes, just tiny little bit open. Yeah. I guess I'll keep waiting then. Yeah, just cling to the <laughs> hope, Marvin. <laughs> well, thank you so much, June, for joining us on Books and Bubble. It was such a fun chat. Good luck with the rest of you. You're still in the midst thank of you. book launch, doing kind all of, your, yeah. um, your press. So, you know, good luck on all that. But um, we're super happy that you're able to carve out some time to stop by Books and Bubble. And we wish you the best on your your future endeavors thank you thanks thanks for having me this was so fun <laughs> yeah and that was june cl tan the author of jade fire gold which is available at bookstores everywhere including our books and boba online bookshop if you go to booksandboba.com and check out our bookshop link you can check out a ton of curated lists that reader has put together including every book that we've covered for this book club as well as all the books of the author interviews that we've done uh, Rira, once again, thank you for maintaining our bookshop.org lists. I will try to do my best to add more lists. I know some <laughs> of those lists can be very long. I know some of those lists are like 40 or more books. And uh, if you have any suggestions for what you want to read or see, uh, just let us know on Twitter and I will try to curate a list for you. Yeah. And as a reminder, every book you buy on our bookshop 
thus help support the podcast. So we really appreciate your support. And for the month of November, we're almost at the end of 2021. Can you can you believe it? Wow. I can't. Time has no meaning. Um, but our second to last book of 2021 is going to be On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous by Ocean Vuong. Uh, this book, you've probably heard of it. it. It's a bestseller and we've heard wonderful things about it. So I'm excited to dive into it. It's also pretty short. It's only like 250 pages. So you'll get through it pretty quickly. Yeah. If you've already finished the book, we'd love to hear your thoughts on our Goodreads forums. Um, but otherwise, um, we're um, but otherwise we're going to you know discuss the but otherwise we're going to be discussing this book at the end of the month. So you have until then to read along with us. And yeah, that'll do it for this episode of Books and Boba. We'll see y'all next time. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Ri Ryu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian American hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Bill Yu, and you may know me from a blog called Angry Asian Man. And I'm Jeff Yang, author, journalist, and celebrity dad. We host a podcast called They Call Us Bruce, an unfiltered conversation about what's happening in Asian America. Each week or so, we host a discussion about some of the most vital and interesting topics in our pop culture and our community, bringing in guests who are shaping and informing this thing called Asian America from Hollywood to D.C. and beyond. Uh, we've got media, entertainment, food, family, politics, representation, the good, the bad, the WTF of it all. So check us out wherever you get your podcasts or at theycallsbruce.com. Peace. Peace. Peace.